Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Hello one and all, how are ya? Before I take you to meet this week's guest, there's a couple of things I need to tell you. As ever, firstly, thank you to all our Patreon supporters, without whom this podcast could not be made. And if you like what you hear, and you'd like to donate as little as £3 a month, just go over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile, you'll see a Linktree drop-down box, you can follow the link there over to the Patreon page where, as I said, you'll be able to support us from as little as £3 a month, which is pretty much a cup of coffee, right? But if you're not able to, that's just fine. This content is free for everyone. Well, it's also that time of year when my barbed wire dark stars are back, and they come with the tagline of not everyone follows the brightest star, and make of that what you will. They are a handcrafted star on a stem made from high tensile barbed wire. They are approximately 60 by 35 centimetres. They are sold as a limited edition decorative item in addition of 30. And although they're not designed to go on top of a tree, every year I get plenty of photos sent to me of people that have done just that. And as I said, they're in a limited edition of 30. They come in black gloss, white, silver, gold and red. And they are £90 including UK mainland postage. So if you'd like one for yourself or anyone else, just drop me a line on any of the socials at MizogArt, M-I-Z-O-G-A-R-T. Or you can also contact me via the Ministry of Arts. Well, back to this week's guest. Today, I'm taking you to meet Ali Rosenberg. It was only this year that i became become aware of Ali's work via the Skip Gallery's Bums exhibition. He mainly uses industrial materials with the occasional found object. His work has plenty of visual humour and some quite nostalgic undertones. 
And earlier this year, he and I were both part of the Skip Gallery when they showed at Forbes Stavry's factory project, which Ali talks about in this episode. An episode that was recorded face-to-face and not over Zoom, you'd be glad to hear. So please, come and join me at the Bomb Factory with Ali Rosenberg. You've got a show coming up. How did that come about? What's it called? When's it happening? It's happening... We're opening on the 18th of November. It came about because... I had a couple of friends who had solos here and I came and saw it and got nattering to Palace, who runs the place. And it's actually just, you know, 200 yards away from uh, what was by I'm sure School of yeah. Art and now is just Central St. Martin, so which is where I came when I moved from Manchester. I came here and did my foundation here. What, at by I'm sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So it feels like, and that was like around 10 years ago or maybe a bit more so it feels very like coming full circle which is nice but yeah I got chatting to Palace and it just sort of snowballed but I'm really it's sort of come about perfectly because for a first solo show um, to do it somewhere where you can really play around with the space and she said I can use it as a residency um, just do something interesting rather than worrying too much about it being a commercial show yeah and how long are you here for if it is a residency? I started on the 12th. So it's just just over a month. Will, the residency will have, have mounted to just over a month, um, which is ridiculous, really, because I didn't have a single thing ready for it. I've not been working on stuff for this like for months in advance. So everything you, that will be in the show will have been made in four weeks. And did you, was it made here or in the studio? Um, everything so far has been made here, but... Um, there is some stuff being made off-site. I'm working on a couple of things in my studio, and there are... Um, I've started working with water jet cutting, nice. as you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that's new to me, the whole thing of outsourcing production. Yeah. It's really nice, actually. It is, isn't it? And then once <laughs> it starts, you'll realise, why did you waste so much Why did time I ever bother making anything? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just boss people around. No, it's... Um, it's really nice because obviously the technology is very, you know, it's amazing and very sexy and very Instagrammable. You know, have you ever seen any of these videos of things being, you know, cutting yeah, through bowling you just balls? Get lost, get lost watching them. It's very satisfying. But um, no, I like it because it it's a way of translating my drawings into sculpture in a very direct way. I just give them my drawings and they will cut into whether it's bricks or. Brilliant. Marble or or and what have tiles. you cut so far? First thing was those brick pieces. So the show I was in with you, factory project. I, we were with, we were with Skip Gallery, yeah. and I decided to fill tip my skip on the side and fill it with bricks that had been uh, water jet cut. So the negative shape of a of sperm cells were cut out of each brick, and that was really nice. Um, it was very effective. The skip was on its side as if there'd been an accident and the bricks had spilled out. But what was the idea behind having a sperm in a brick? You know what, I I don't know. It it sort of evolved from one thing to another. I knew that I liked the idea... I'll tell you what it was. Right, so I'd worked with Skip Gallery before because we'd done a show in Mykonos um, called Bums. Yeah, some of that. And that was really exciting. That was a few months ago. But because... It was abroad, there were no skips involved, yeah. which I think is a first for them. But because that was my way in, I'd sort of forgotten that they were all about skips. So by the time it came to the factory project, 
um, which for people who don't know, is massive. Was it Tate and Lyle uh, factory? Yeah. 63,000 square feet. Yeah, mad. Thorpe Stavry, who put it on, and I did a show with them last October, yeah. which was brilliant. And so, yeah, I, I was sort of thinking of ideas, and then Lee from Skip Gallery said about Skips. I went, oh, shit, yeah, Skips. Oh. And then I sort of suddenly felt a bit like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with a Skip. I don't like working to a yeah, brief yeah. or having a you know a thing. And so I thought about uh, a poem I'd heard, which is not how I usually work, but I just remembered a poem by James Fenton called The Skip, which is quite a funny oh, poem. Right. I recommend reading it if you get a chance. It's, uh, and I just remembered there was a line. It was all sort of like, uh, you know, I took my life and threw it on the tip, threw it on the skip, and it went on this whole thing. It's like this extended metaphor. And then it said something about, there lay my poor old life arse over tip. And um, so I just thought of that, and he talks about mattresses, things that kind of get left on on skips. So my first idea was to get some mattresses, some like secondhand mattresses, and get them water jet cut. Yeah. And I like the idea of almost like a um, a body cutout um, of a mattress. And then the idea was to have a few mattresses stacked up. And then the idea was like, well, hang on, what am I going to put the mattresses on? I'll, well, rubble, that's, you know, obviously what goes in a skip. And then I was thinking, well, I was looking on Gumtree for people who wanted to get rid of rubble and bricks and things. I found someone near Alexandra Palace who had 200 bricks and I got them for cheap and then thought I'm going to cut all these different shapes and they were originally going to be loads of different things sort of household objects cut out of bricks and then I had the idea for a sperm and then I just thought oh you know what the strength of that idea would be in the being one image yeah it was actually six different versions of 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 a sperm but you, you know what I mean obviously one thing that has been cut out of all of them and obviously I guess sperm come in you know come in high numbers yeah, yeah. ideally so um so yeah so I, in the end I just went for that and I did get the mattresses cut and they looked shit so I, oh. I I got rid of them and actually it was it was a much better piece I think yeah. for just having that singular concept yeah I agree I thought it was, it was possibly my favorite piece I didn't ah. want to say that to you oh thanks well earlier. don't tell anyone don't put it on yeah. a podcast no, I was, I was, we was talking about it um Holly and I were sitting there talking about your piece for for quite a while at the show. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I was quite impressed with it. And you also had um, a small brick wall, maybe six or seven courts high. Yeah, there were four with, of them. With cutouts. Yeah, they were sort of. some of them were scattered within and one was sort of outside the skip. So that was nice. I, I learnt some skills in pointing and, <laughs> and bricklaying. Yeah. It's nice to have a fallback. And um, yeah, and, and got those ones cut so that the sperm's actually crossed over from one brick to yeah. another and through the mortar and things like that. Yeah, so there is a sort of journey. Yeah, journey. I wanted to do there to be a bit of movement in them. But um, So yeah, that was the first thing I got water jet cut. Got something cut out of concrete at the same time, just as test piece, which actually I might go back to that for this show. And then now, as we speak, I think today's um, the first day they're cutting stuff for this show, I've got... Uh, a board that I've tiled that they're going to cut into. I've got some marble, which is all a bit fancy. Um, and for anyone into. that doesn't know, the water cutting is literally what it is. It's a high pressure, very small, maybe what quarter of a millimetre of jet of water. Yeah, or maybe a, a millimetre or two, I don't know. But it's, it's super high pressure water. And they do put their sand, like, they call it yeah. garnet, yeah. in there as well. So it's so powerful, it cuts through, you know, cast iron yeah, or yeah, mar- granite, anything. Um, and 
it's just this massive water tank basically with these metal struts that yeah. they balance whatever on and they have to keep it moving because I think if it stays in one place too long it goes through the bottom of the machine and down to the core of the earth <laughs> but um, it is it's a good process I guess it's you know it's no different from in terms of just cutting out based on drawings is it called CAD or CNC yeah, CAD. Yeah, um, um, it's no different from those but the benefit of it is that it's low temperature yeah so you can do you know materials that otherwise would suffer from burnt, yeah and um yeah. obviously you just have to be careful i i mounted some stuff on chipboard i use a lot of osb board yeah and that sitting in a water tank for an hour or so it's, it's not good, good no. um and obviously the mattresses got very <laughs> yeah um, take a few days to dry out yeah so we'll see it's all a bit scary because if uh, if i'm in control of what i'm making i feel like right i know you know how it's going to go pretty much and I've, I've it's all on me but yeah. once you're relying on other people i keep thinking what if this company goes bust tomorrow <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'm screwed for and the thing two. is when you're working with industrial people yeah a lot of them don't see the aesthetics they just see the material so to them it isn't an artwork it's a brick yeah i mean fortunately i've found there's not many companies who do it fortunately i've found a team of people who are really open and great and you know we have the conversation because yeah. they do a lot with this sort of thing they do a lot for like fancy hotels in dubai or whatever oh, the flooring yeah, and all yeah, that yeah, so yeah. they are concerned with aesthetics yeah. but i in most of what i do will find that especially because i work with a lot of construction materials i end up speaking to people who there's a practical use for that material and I don't want it yeah. practically I want it aesthetically so when I'm getting you know reconstructed uh recon foam like this um I care about the color of it but the whole point of it is it's recycled stuff yeah. that goes inside uh, you know a, a crash mat or a cushion or yeah. a mattress yeah. and so I'm calling them up and going what colors do you have and they're going well it's whatever color it comes yeah. and I'm going yeah but do the different densities of foam have different colors and they go yeah but one sort of greeny one sort of yellowy one sort of pinky I went well okay can I get pictures of it and they're like well it's all going inside a mattress anyway I said no it's not I, I do care what it looks yeah. like so I spend a lot they're of time those conversations yeah they? but sometimes you meet brilliant people who are totally bewildered by what you're doing but they love it and they go yeah oh this one's it's, almost, it's more of a sort of peachy coral colour it's like yeah. okay I found the right person to yeah. talk to but um, it's as if they've found a new use for the material that they that they don't put much value on yeah I mean it is funny when you've got to send pictures of uh, sperm or a sort of anus to <laughs> people who are used to just cutting cutting like kitchen worktops and you're like can you make this uh, marble anus for me please <laughs> sure well, I'm sure most people can get a, an idea of, of how how you work and what you work with. But my first question of seven is, how would you explain what you do to someone that doesn't know your work? Oh, I knew this question was coming, and I still didn't think of a good answer. <laughs> um, I've sort of got over the reluctance to say artist, because you do feel a bit um, wanky saying someone I'm an artist. Um, but I'm over that now, and that's what I say. And I, if they ask more questions, I'll say sculpture. Yeah. Um, if I haven't put them off, <laughs> made them walk away from me already, then I'll go into detail about um, the kind of things I do. It's sort of uh, loosely figurative, often referencing the body, if not directly, then in um, the way you interact with it. So yeah. I, I like there to be some sort of bodily experience with the work. Um, the main kind of piece for this show that I'm working on, which you've just seen, 
is actually a floor-based installation which you can work, walk on to sort of access the other works on the walls. And even though that, that doesn't, you know, it's not a representation of the body, I hope that it very much feels like a bodily yeah. experience. It is, well, it is what you're talking about. It is parquet flooring yeah. put together, stuck on six inches of foam, so that when you actually walk on the flooring, it does break and collapse underneath you, but it does reform behind you. Yeah, it sort of clunks back into place yeah. in this really weird way. Because even though you can see it's on foam, it and I, even though I've made it and I know how it works, there is still the weird almost like muscle memory expectation yeah, yeah. that you're going to step on it and it'll be a solid ground yeah. and then it isn't. And watching you walk on it for the first time, you, you were sort of like, oh, 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 I don't know about this. Yeah. Test it for a while. Yeah. And so far, the few people who've passed through and given it a go have either said, that was really horrible. Yeah. Or they've said, oh, this is satisfying. This is fun. It's a bit adult playground well, it is that uh, confliction that you were saying between, you know, it's a hard surface. You can see a hard surface. You can see a soft surface beneath it. Yeah. And you're trying to figure out what it's going to be, and it turns out it's it's both, and that doesn't really work well. Parquet flooring shouldn't do that, and yeah. neither should a mattress. It's sort of like foam. a yeah, little almost like an optical illusion or a little brain trick. But even when you see the working, it doesn't. It's like the placebo effect. You can know it's not real, and yeah. yet it still works. But um, I, funnily enough, that piece I actually made something similar at art school. And I don't usually go back to old ideas. I always felt like that was something that, you know, you've got to move forward, you can't look back, and it's just, you know, you want to yeah. feel like you've progressed into them. But I've sort of let myself do that with this one. I was talking to someone who said, oh, I remember that piece you did at St. Martin's where you were the parquet flooring. And at that time, it was actually parquet flooring reclaimed from my old, my old primary school because they were knocking it down and rebuilding it. And I said, what are you going to do with all the parquet flooring in the, you know, in the... Uh, food, you know, yeah. lunch hall, and uh, I tried it out then. I did it in a different way, but I thought there was, uh, it just came back into my mind a few months ago. I thought there's something in that, and I, I'm equipped to resolve that piece now. I know yeah. how I would do it better. Yeah. But actually, it, I just it was percolating. It yeah. was just it was. I didn't know what to do with it yet, yeah, and now got I'm a equipped. Language now. Yeah, yeah. You've you've moved on as an artist and grown, and it was possibly a good idea at the time that could have been better executed if you would have had more experience, and now you have. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's the way I see it, anyway. Yeah, I, yeah. You have a lot of humour in your artwork. Yeah, I'm told that. And there's <laughs> me saying you've got a lot of humour, and you give a... <laughs> Flat <laughs> response. <laughs> no, it's true, it's true. And it's funny because humour is something that I am interested in, or at least when I was at art school, that was what my dissertation was about. I was interested in humour in art. I was thought about it a lot and these days I don't think about it at all and it's in the work when I used to think about it all the time and write about it and talk about it my work was so fucking dry and boring because you know there's that thing within art where it's, it's there's a difference between humour and comedy or humour and even uh, laughter so, yeah. you know it's more the sort of <laughs> yeah. very good sort of humour than it's, that it's, visceral response of laughing yeah and it's, it's hard to, to know where that line is because once you've crossed it for whatever reason, the artwork diminishes the closer it gets to funny rather than humorous, I think. Yeah, that's definitely, I think, how people perceive it. And maybe not so much anymore, but there has been that squeamishness around, or even just snobbishness around artwork that's funny. I don't know if that's the case now. I think maybe as the world gets shitter, yeah. people crave yeah. the well, playfulness. Coming out of 
pandemic, I feel there's been a lot more humour in yeah. artwork, unless unless I just see the the less serious side in. Uh, yeah, I think people want it more. I think I think uh, not that you make work, you know, preempting what people want, but I just think that there's more openness to it because, and maybe it is just because people's lives are harder. You're right that if it feels too much like a punchline, like it just reads off the surface, it's just the badum ch. Yeah. It feels cheap somehow, but I don't know if that's true. I think I think what what's difficult is laughter is sort of involuntary and it's very immediate and it, you you don't choose it. And so once you've got the laugh, maybe it feels like where do you go from there? But I don't know. Humor, as we know, is a brilliant tool for all sorts of things. And humour doesn't always mean that you find something kind of funny in a comedic or thematically yeah. like comical way. But I don't know, these are all things that I used to think about so much and now that I don't, it's just in the work. And I think that's just because when you get your head down and you're just making rather than trying to put some sort of thesis into the work like you do at art school, your personality comes out. Funnily enough, when I was at art school, parallel to it I always saw it as a totally separate thing I didn't see it as an extension of my art practice there was a friend from school he actually wasn't a friend from school he was in like three years above me at my school and we bumped into each other you know when we both moved to London and we long story short started writing together and we wrote just for a bit of fun wrote a sitcom it was sort of we called it a comedy drama somehow to make it feel more (laughs) weighty than a sitcom but it was a sitcom and we ended up, he um, was a theatre producer and we sort of got the idea into our heads that we would film a pilot and just do it ourselves. Better than being a piece of paper on a yeah. desk, we'll film a pilot. And we filmed, a, and it snowballed into this thing where we had like a cast and crew of 40 odd people. We, you know, filming on location and we got quite far along with Sky and BBC and talking to, you know, we, we, were, we had a few production companies fighting over us and then it all fizzled out. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because it's uh, it's one of those failures that I really don't feel sad about. I no. actually feel like that isn't a world I would have been happy in. Yeah. And the life of being a fine artist, as opposed to a writer, where you're beholden to other voices and commissioners and people in suits going, yeah, but our demographic really wants to see yeah. someone who's two inches taller and has a moustache or whatever. I just think I would have hated it. And we already, I already kind of got a glimpse into that. People going, well, you know, we're going to have to attach a name to it if we want it to really sell. And we're thinking of this person and that person because they're quite in right now. I'm thinking, that's not who the character yeah, is. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't really have aspirations to be a comedy writer, but I really enjoyed that project. And I, so funny, isn't it? Because when it's something that all like older family, like relatives and people in the community I grew up in, they can kind of, they get that more than they get being a fine artist. Yeah. So when I go back to Manchester, they're still, what was that? How, how was that, that TV show? What? Such a shame your play didn't work out. Yeah. It wasn't a play, it was a sitcom, and I'm fine with it. But I always feel like I'm trying to sort of save face by going, oh, I wouldn't have wanted it anyway. Yeah. But I, I genuinely am quite at peace with that failure that we got so far and then it didn't happen because I'm happy with how things are now. But, yeah, I obviously, I obviously do have a kind of craving for being funny. Yeah. Um, whether it's in the work or just in well, <laughs> conversation. Well, you're a of your personality, isn't it? Yeah. What I don't want in my work is solemnity, is this, of work being solemn. I'm happy for it to be serious, 
and you know somehow deal with something interesting yeah. or weighty but but when something is humorless and i think even the seriousness of your work it's not humorless it's just do you know when some stuff is there maybe a little bit too solemn yeah and i think even like the piece you did um for skip gallery which I don't know if you've talked about it on the podcast already, but, you know, the skip that is the same dimensions as a prison cell and you've kind of mapped out the living space of, you know, two um, adults living in a prison cell within the confines of a skip. I think it was a really powerful piece and it was obviously serious. But I wouldn't describe it as solemn. And I don't know what that distinction is, no. but intuitively there's something that didn't feel... Um, maybe it's because it's not self-important your work there's a generosity to your work i don't know what it is but for me there's a distinction between seriousness and solemnity did you have that art in the hand growing up um yeah but it, i mean it's the same paintings that my parents have got in the house now although my dad's recently got into buying like <laughs> prints online that are really cheap just these hideous like really like like that you know they're printed on canvas and then they put like bits of glue on it to make it look like it's yeah. a painting and it's just because one of them looks like their dog and they've got it on the wall and well, I, I, like I sort of well, no, I, I like the fact that there's a taste out there for everyone yeah my, it's, my dad's eccentric um they've you know I don't know if my mum has that much input in the art she I think wouldn't necessarily have the confidence to say she has a particular taste in art but there were always paintings by there was a sort of family friend um, of my grandparents called Albin Trowski and he did these amazing quite illustrative paintings some of them actually were just beautiful sort of you know traditional oil paintings some of them were these very loose um, watercolours so those were knocking about but my paternal grandpa who was a doctor also did oil painting and was really good at it an amateur amateur artist but was really good and so I was actually surrounded by those a lot and didn't realise how fucking good they were until I was older and went to art school and because they'd just always been around yeah, and, he, and he was yeah. quite prolific so they were in his in their flat my grandparents flat they were just tessellated across the walls Brilliant. and there were some portraits and there were landscapes and he would go to the park and take a picture and then come home and paint did it did you appear in any? I think he did do a portrait of me once yeah but he really and I'm preempting one of the questions that's coming up um, was a big starting point for art for me because I would go, he had like a little attic room in their apartment and I would go and cut pieces of balsa wood and he would show me how to paint things. And So he was sort of the main artistic force in the family. Well, one of the um, the artists I spoke to, Katie Wicks, comedian. Yeah, listen to it, great episode. She, she said that she'd go up to her grandfather who was a great painter Mm. Um, and he would just brush her away tell her to go away really that's really sad isn't it my grandpa was very generous with all of that and it's funny because he he's died now but um, he kind of I think of him as a really important figure in my art and life because apart from the fact that he was the arty person in the family that you know would I mean all my family have been encouraging but he he was it sort of all started with him I think um as I got to art school and started playing around a bit more with less traditional ideas of what I could make and being more challenging in that way he didn't really get it he was still always supportive but he would be a bit sort of like 
he didn't get it. Yeah. And he was sort of a bit, you know, eye-rolly about it. In many ways, he was this figure of traditional masculinity. He was like a bodybuilder in his heyday, and very sporty and athletic. Um, I'm not so sporty. And he's this sort of traditional figure of uh, family and the sort of patri- benevolent patriarch of a family. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I may be, you know, I'm less traditional in, in my lifestyle. It's unlikely I'm going to be the sort of <laughs> wife and three kids kind of guy. Um, and also traditions of art, these, you know, uh, very old school oil paintings. And being the artist who also studied neuroscientist, in some ways I very much followed in his footsteps and fulfilled his um, you know, maybe what he would have wanted from me and he was very proud. But in other ways, I was an atheist, gay, you know, conceptual artist who just, sort of, he just didn't get it. And how did those elements um, go down in a traditional family? I mean, I've been very, very lucky. My family have been very supportive without always getting it. I think that was it. I certainly, I certainly wasn't discouraged from being who I was and am. Were they religious? Yeah, so I was raised in in a relatively religious Jewish household. I know, well, my family, it's everybody's different, aren't they? A a relatively religious Jewish community, and um, my family are quite traditional and have the things that they keep and don't keep, and it changed, you know, at different points growing up. In some ways, I could probably describe a childhood that sounds quite, um, you know, restricted and, and observant, and in other ways, less so. We were always very much in the middle. So I had this weird experience, I think, growing up of being, to half of my friends and community, in comparison to them, we were quite religious and we weren't allowed to drive on Saturday and I couldn't come to the party or there were things we couldn't do. But to the other half of my social circle, we were like the, you know, the least observant and we watched TV on a Saturday and, you know, they sort of maybe looked down on us a little bit until the football was on on Saturday and they (laughs) just happened to knock on the door. Oh, don't worry about turning the telly off. You know, so um, we were sort of very much in the middle of that. Um, But how did my family um, react? I think, you know, there's elements of pushback as you're growing up, but I definitely had, by the time I was going off to London, which again wasn't, you know, none of my family had gone off out of Manchester to study and certainly no one had studied art. It's not the sort of thing that you tend to do in that community. Not that it's actively discouraged, it's just the culture is that there are other things that are more encouraged because of, you know, whatever reasons there are that, you know, second, third uh, generation immigrants value having a trade, having a profession, being able to make a living. So by the time I was sort of 18, 19, 20, I think my parents had very much like resigned themselves to the fact that I was going to do what I was going to do. And it, it was never a big problem. I think there were adjustment periods with certain things and me moving away from religion. And, um, you know, I think every family has to get their head around uh, a child diverging from the path that was expected of them. Using their own mind, yeah. But I think luckily my parents have always been the sort of parents who love their children more than they love their ideas about what life is like. And so they've they've, they've grown and changed and... um, you know, my, I'm, I'm very fortunate. My life's fine. Good. 
When was it you realised you wanted to be an artist? Oh, it's it's a weird one because I was always making art. You know, from being tiny, I was always drawing and I did lots of cartoons and I was the kid at school who would draw caricatures of teachers and get into trouble for that. And um, and art was a way at school of me. I wasn't sporty. Um, and so I kind of, it was a sort of social survival in that I had a thing that I could show off with. Art was really all about showing off for a long time. And maybe still is. I've sort of allowed myself to bring back my inner show off because art school kind of drummed it out for me. And I think rightly so, I had to learn some actual thinking skills. Yeah, rather with all than... artists, we're making something and saying, come and look at me. Yeah, yeah. And But I, I felt guilty for a long time making stuff that was sort of visually arresting and some way loud and, you know, a look at me kind of art. It had to be sort of, you know, come and think if you want. Yeah. And actually... I always found that frustrating and boring, but I didn't really allow myself to acknowledge it because I thought that's what it was supposed to be. But anyway, I've, I've got back to my inner show-off, I think. And um, that's what it was in secondary school. It was stuff that people knew me for being able to do that. And so there was a sort of respect in it. And I was always doing it. I definitely dis- discovered 3D stuff and material and sculpture when I was more like 15, 16. And then, then that was the way I was going to go. But I also thought I might study medicine at one point because yeah. that is something that, you know, there were lots of doctors in my family and that was the expected route. Um, and there was a period of time, as I told you before, that I thought maybe I'd be a comedy writer. But, but um, Maybe and, a doctor has been a com- comedian, haven't they? Well, oh God, can you imagine how awful if I was just this doctor telling awful jokes? <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I've, I've since learned that I so that so is not how I would be able to function. I, you know, I don't even think there's a parallel life where that would have worked out. Yeah. I Now it's so obvious to me that, um, you know, this was always the way it was going to go. But when I look back, it was always... It was sort of never in question that I was going to be making art in some way because I had a grandfather who was a doctor who was an artist. So I think I was always open to this idea of being a Renaissance man, someone who could... that, that There weren't these dividing lines between art and science, the dichotomy of um, the humanities and the sciences. I sort of already knew it was wrong. And when I went back to my old high school... Um, a few years later when I was studying neuroscience and my A-level uh, science teacher said, oh, hi, how, what, you do, what are you up to now? And I said, I'm doing, um, I've just got back from doing an internship at Harvard's Neuroimaging Lab and I'm doing neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience at UCL. She went, what? Hang on. You weren't scientific. Because she sort of really, you know, didn't, didn't give me much, uh, I think she'd written me off as yeah. artistic. She went, you were artistic. So I went, okay. You know, it seems that two of the best universities in the world also think I'm scientific. You know, yeah. so maybe maybe it says more about you than me that exactly. you didn't spot it. Yeah. And I was I was angry about it actually because I felt like I didn't discover that I was clever really until later on. Yeah, I always felt that um, it was obvious that I had a creative side, and because of this misconception that creativity and intelligence are not the same thing, at school it was like, oh, it's fine. He's got that. I was fine in other subjects. I was very kind of average. I was all right, maybe above average in certain things, but I was always in the middle set in the streamed classes. And it was only after I left secondary school that 
I discovered, and it was an art school that I discovered, that I have an intellectual side. And uh, it was always going to be art in some way, but it might have been a weirder route to it. But there's many an artist who use science in their artwork. Mm -hmm. And it is just one of their tools that they've got in their in their toolbox mm. you know and I loved scientists reading about scientists who were interested in aesthetics I got into neuroscience through people like Oliver Sacks and uh, a guy called Ramachandran these people who were interested in the aesthetics or, or the neuroscience of aesthetics how that all functions in the brain and also Oliver Sacks was such a beautiful writer he was an artist he was in the arts he was he wrote these incredible narratives that were case studies of patients he was a neurologist but they were beautiful stories and so my way into science was kind of great communicators who make it accessible um, through, through you know, bringing an aesthetic into their science. And how do you keep an interest in science? I mean, I don't know that I do consciously think about... It's like what I said about humour earlier. It's, neuroscience is something I used to think about loads and obviously was studying it. And it was very obvious to me once I was at university studying, once I blagged my way onto a course, that I was not a scientist. I was not a neuroscientist. Yeah. I was I was an artist studying neuroscience. Yeah. Um, but some of the most creative people I've met were, you know, people studying neuroscience with me. But um, so it's not something I consciously think about. But I do think about the parallels between the making of art in a whatever context it's in to elicit a, a conscious experience yeah, a, yeah. a feeling of you know whether it's humor or whatever it is you're trying to evoke in a, in in someone and it's an artificial experience you're you're making something you're making a prop essentially to talk about something true and to try and stimulate or simulate something true in the brain and when you learn how to design neuroscientific paradigms these experiments that isolate human experience cognitive neuroscience is all about that what is the ex you know what are these experiences what are under what's underpinning them what are the neural underpinnings of of humor or love or aesthetics or whatever and it's the same thing because you you know whether you're studying someone in a mri machine it's this great big magnetic donut and you put someone in it and try and simulate an experience to then monitor it well you can't separate that ex experience yeah. from the fact they're in a big magnetic donut so really all you're studying is what it's like to be in a big magnetic donut having an experience simulated for you so you can't separate the experience from the context and that's sort of i guess what my show is about on solid ground it's this whole thing of is it possible to have an authentic conscious experience and the the kind of flimsiness of art and language in trying to um you know i'm saying all this these jumble of sounds now to try and connect my brain with yours and to share my experience my consciousness with you all we've got are these uh external things where it's the noises i'm making or the objects i'm making or the whatever it is it's all about building a bridge between one brain and another and it's really hard because we can't share what they talk about in philosophy of mind is qualia, the what's it likeness of something. Oh, yeah. You know, it's that thing, the stuff when you're, you know, 14 and you 
having trippy conversations like, well, how do you know that my red is the same as your <laughs> yeah. red? You know, it's yeah, that, it's that stuff. Known, you can't know. Um, and so we try to use language and visual language like art to bridge the gap. When did you discover that you were clever? Because I'm, I'm, I'm away. I reckon you are. I don't, and I don't mean clever that in no, the way I'm that you might have known in a sort of, uh, you know, savvy, streetwise kind of way. Well, but the thing is, was it when you discovered art? I think so. But then once I discovered art and I discovered me, when I started looking at me and evaluating the person that I was, because before I just used to sort of deflect reality. I was always living in my little fun bubble, you know, it'd be violent, funny, sexual, you know, wh whatever the environment was at the moment. But it was never serious. I never sat and thought about my life, where it was going, where it had come from. It was only when I started doing that that I saw the real me. Didn't like some bits and tried to correct them. Yeah. And that was really, really difficult. And I think that that's when I realised how hard life can be for some people and how easy it had previously been for me because I didn't acknowledge any of it. Yeah. And then things started getting a bit more complicated. And when I brought art in, especially conceptual art, because then I had to not only think about what I had in front of me, I had to try and think about how to explain my theory, if you like, to another person in a way that is using the the most minimal amount of, of visual objects. That's that brilliant. Is. So this is why I've always thought that... Um, the, the very people who, like, at school would have, you know, scoffed at the art classes and been, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, and certainly conceptual art, oh, it's a load of bullshit. But they're the people who would be the best artists if they were given... And the arts education system, you know, particularly at secondary school level, I think is so lacking because the teachers don't have access to this stuff particularly and it's not, you know... I think the people who are challenging, the ones who are instead of making art where, you know, throwing bits of paper around or, you know, whatever, misbehaving, if it was presented in the right way, they'd be so much better artists or more interesting artists than the ones who make ceramic frogs. Yeah. Or, you know, the ones who just happen to be good at, you know, drawing the thing that the teacher says that looks like the thing yeah. that you're supposed to be drawing in well done. When I go into prisons and try and explain conceptual art to guys who have no interest in it whatsoever yeah. and they are every one of them more or less is the guy that says what I used to say is that can't be art because I can make it right and then I would say well then you've got the potential to be get, a on, fucking get artist. on with it then yeah. you know when I was whatever age and was doing a drawing and got that recognition and validation from whichever adult it would have been saying wow that does look like a, a cat yeah. or whatever then you carry on going, you keep going, you keep going. If you're a kid who can't, you know, draw a cat in the way that the adults have all agreed that a cat should look, with a circle and two little triangles on its head and whatever, you know, whatever the agreed symbol is for cat, they kind of don't get pushed down that route. And so by the time they're 15 and they're in art class, they've already decided, I can't do it. And by the time they're the age of whatever person it is going, that can't be art because I can do it, their whole metric of art is, art is stuff I can't do. Yeah. But also I think that having a background in you know in crime if that's how you put it there's something about a tendency of someone to try and break the rules and uh someone who tries to find loopholes and challenge things that i think if you can keep yourself out of serious trouble 
and channel that into something. It's the sort of perfect makeup for an artist. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the extent of my uh, misbehaving, and I'm really not creating a comparison here at all, but when I was uh, at secondary school, I used to use my art skills to create mischief or, 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 or problems just in a way that would help friends. It was sort of like a way of being popular, I guess, yeah. because I would do things like make the stamp for the nightclub that we were all too young to get into. And I wasn't even interested in going yeah. clubbing, but I knew that I could sort of stay in with the crowd of people because I could, out of a rubber would cut the shape of the stamp and then mix the ink to make the yeah. and everyone could get in for free or um you know uh, the sixth form library was operated you could only get in if you had a card and you'd swipe the card and then it would open and it's an electromagnet at the top none of us ever had a card so i would go into the art room and make like this acetate sheet and stick it over the electromagnet yeah. so it was just separated enough that the door would never close and they spent weeks trying to fix the broken door <laughs> it wasn't broken I just separated the elect- so little ways of you know <laughs> that wasn't my life of crime right, but, but it's a way of side, thinking on the flip side to that if there would have been a criminal in the family hmm. that said I've got to get past an electromagnetic door to get and do this to get the prize to, yeah. get, to rob this place and you was to go, I've done it in college. All you've got to do is, all of a sudden, you're accessory to that ro- robbery or burglary, you know. I met so many people who were like you, just inquisitive, the guys who took a radio apart and put it back together. You know, them, them sort of guys. Yeah. So many of them in jail mm. because they're just using that same inquisitive nature. Yeah. But just crossed over the line a little bit Well, that's, far, that's what I think. I mean, that's what I'm sort of saying is that I'm not, you know, I don't think there's any difference really between me and you in the in apart from our circumstances of birth yeah. and upbringing. Or knowing or, where to start. Or, 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 well, yeah, but I, I don't know. If I were born into, you know, a certain situation or, or hanging around with a certain type of people or whatever, whatever it is, you know, there's nothing innate in you that, that, that led to you going to prison. Because look at you now, you know. So it's, I don't think it's the same as comparing things like addiction um, or whatever, which are wrapped up in health and illness and whatever. It's purely, it's like there but for the grace of God go yeah, I. Yeah. So I know it's laughable to sort of compare myself to like a life of crime by talking about <laughs> breaking into the sixth form library. Um, but I think it is, uh, it's the circumstance that's the difference, not the mindset. And I think yeah. the mindset of someone who goes, yeah, but... I reckon I can get around that. That is, you know, in a in a very privileged middle class upbringing, it manifests in sneaking your friends into a nightclub, and maybe in a different circumstance, it leads you down a, a darker path. But yeah. yeah, but I think that that mindset, that kind of um, that mindset of challenging things, is totally conducive to making great art. And I, yeah. and so a lot of the people at school that I knew who were naughty, quote unquote would have been brilliant artists if they'd been granted access to it. But it wasn't accessible to them. Yeah, because it is that creative mind, isn't it? You know, you're looking at the world in a little, slightly off-centre. Yeah. If there was you and five other artists, past and present, what would your ideal group show be? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there are artists... I feel like there's artists that I like and would love to know or would have liked to have, you know maybe own their work or whatever 
but now I feel like uh, curating it into a show, I've got to think about who would go. You know what? It's all people who I know now who are like emerging artists. Nice. You know, I've recently got to know artists like Liam Fallon and, you know, sculptors who I've known through Instagram, who I think are brilliant. Um, Marcus, whose studio is just here, Marcus Nelson, is has become a friend and he's really great. I don't know. Um I was I was lucky enough with the skip show to show alongside David Trigley uh, a couple of months ago and that was surreal because he was someone that I sort of wrote about at GCSE Brilliant. you know and so it's now and now I'm in a show with him I used to really love Lucy and Freud no uh, you know I know sculpture I'm is more my thing but there were painters that I used to really really like looking at bodily stuff when I was younger I used to really like uh, Ron Muek Oh, nice. Um, at the yeah, I know. I've not managed to see it yet. I sort of got got bored and, and uh, you know, because my background was in figurative sculpture, I, when I was 16, 17, I was trying to make work like that. And, you know, I had, an, I had a facility for making, you know, very realistic representations of, of faces and bodies. So that was kind of my thing. And as I moved away from that, as I felt like, oh, there's more to, there's more to art than making people go, wow, it looks just like a real yeah, person. Yeah. I kind of moved away from Ron Muick and, and, and found interest in other things. Um, who do I really like? I like Holly Hendry. That's another um, yeah. you know young artist. But these are people who've got similar sensibilities to me. They'd either go well in a group show or, or badly. I don't know. Um, how many have I said? Six. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we covered them. We covered. <laughs> Which piece of artwork has got the strongest emotional connection? Do you think that you've created for me of of my work? Oh, I don't know. I don't feel that emotionally connected to my work. I mean, obviously, it depends what you mean by emotion. Obviously, there are emotions involved, but it's not sort of uh, the sentimental emotions that maybe you're talking about. It's not. Has there been any? Which I like the feeling when, when this happens for me. Yeah. When. When you're starting an artwork and you have your expectations and the finished piece in your mind's eye, and then when it's complete, it's different than you was expecting, or the journey you made some quite strong discoveries on the way. Yeah, I definitely have those. Um, I think that the brick sperm piece, whatever, I definitely learned a lot doing that piece because it was a different way of working. I think when you make sorry when no. you make an artwork like like the the brick sperm for instance, you envisage it. You know it's going to be a strong image, and you don't quite know what the end result is because you've not given it that much mind space yeah. to to see what it is or why it is you're creating. It. Yeah, and it's that journey. You sort of you're journeying with the bricks and the, the water jet, and all of a sudden you're, you're building the story as you go. So. You, it's a journey you're taking with the artwork. Yeah. I enjoy when that happens. Yeah, and I guess it, with with me, there's different levels of like expectation. It depends how how open I am to the work evolving into something else. Something like the brick piece definitely evolved from con- conception to fruition. Totally different. It was, was that the first time you used water jet? Yeah. On the bricks? Yeah, it was, yeah. And then that's... The so that's a new thing as well, yeah. But then a lot of pieces, once I decide what I'm going to do and I, and I draw it out and whatever... I'm quite good at fabricating things. So they, they look at, you know, that piece downstairs made out of the doors that hopefully people will see for my solo show. That looks, if I show you the drawing, that is what it was always going to be. And, all, you know, quite accurately, 
there were a couple of things that evolved in the making process. It wasn't always going to be made out of wooden doors, but the drawing has been realised um, into a sculpture. In terms of emotional connection, I think a lot of my work is actually about creating a distance between me and the work. The stylized cartoonishness of a lot of the figures, although there's obviously myself in the work in whatever way, I think I'm still always trying to create distance. There's always a, a there's an element of, I think the humour creates distance and that becomes an obstacle to emotional mm. connection. It's doing something, it's interesting, I think, but it's it's all about suspending that emotional sincerity, yeah. that 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 uh, earnestness that of of emotional connection. So maybe that's something that will change over time. I think I just find it hard to access any kind of personal connection to the work. I think other people will see things in my work that assume they assume it's personal, especially with you know when you're dealing with subject matter that has. Uh, bodily or even sexual connotations. I don't think of the work as particularly sexual, but obviously when you're putting penises and things in your work, people see it as talking about sex, but, you know... See, the the, the cock and balls on the door there, down there, Yeah, I just saw that as graffiti. Well, I've done it in that, sort exactly. of that the standard cock and yeah. balls that you draw on, on your homework because or that's whatever. What, whenever you see the comedic cock and balls, you do think... Yeah. Yeah, it's a symbol it's a symbol it's not really talking about um, anatomy in that way but I don't know I've sort of just had to become comfortable with the fact people will read into maybe people will either read more emotion or they'll read more personal stuff into the work than I think about Um, weirdly I get uh, people commenting on my stuff on Instagram from like foot fetish sites and things Wow. Because I sometimes have feet in my work. Yeah. Now, no, you know, no judgment on anyone, no kink shaming here. Everyone, you know, we're all welcome. But I'm not into feet in that way. Yeah. <laughs> I just no, but they assume. I'm sure people assume I am, they're, and I just have to get over that. They've connected their thought process with your work, and then just think, oh. Well, they see what they see in it. Yeah, exactly. it's funny. People go when people say certain things to me about the work that almost reveal their maybe their sexual yeah. hang-ups, I'll go, oh, thanks for letting me know. Yeah. I, I don't know if that says more about you than me, but, but... We all like to think that we have got the silent messages, don't we? <laughs> we, all, we all think we can read that, and yeah. sometimes it's not right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny as well, because people responded to the brick sperm thing differently. Some people saw it as very biological, and almost, you know, and other people were like, oh, jizz bricks. It's <laughs> about spilling the seed. It's a piece about masturbation. That's so I'm like, idea. if you like. The ideal thing with conceptual work, and, and more or less any artwork, anything creative, no matter what the artist, or the, the creator thinks of that artwork, once it's out there, yeah. in the public realm, with no context next to it, mm. it's whatever anyone sees it as. Yeah. No one's wrong. Yeah, and it's interesting because I, when people now I'm at a point where people sort of will, you know, I'm getting more things being written about my work here and there, and someone will refer to me as uh, a queer artist or talk about my work as queer art. I mean, I'm perfectly fine and happy with that. It's not something I choose to talk about. I mean, you can come at just had to write the press release for this show or work with people writing the press release, and it's so difficult because there are so many angles that you could come at it from. And I talk about the work materially most of the time. I'm getting more comfortable with talking about content and the sort of themes in the work. But, you know, you could just as easily talk about my work from the perspective of identity politics. Yeah. But it's just not how I 
choose to come at it. I'm happy for people to read that into it, or at least I'm resigned to the fact people will. But that's just not how I um, how I come at it. And I sort of think more and more, it's not my job to talk about the work in any one way. Yeah, you know, it's my job to make the work. Yeah, and then however people want to talk about it is up to them. I've I've just got to be able to talk about it. In, you know, in a practical sense of being able to, you know, advocate for it. and But it doesn't in there. It's just like you're saying the old work, however many years ago that you made when you was at art school. You know, if you can read your own work differently, yeah, then surely everyone else can. Yeah. It, it, was, it was hard when I started making work more like this after the fictional artist period. Yeah. I gave myself about a year, really, of playing around with things in the studio and trying to get back to that non-judgmental state of mind where you can make stuff without without any thought to who's going to see it, if they're going to see it, what they're going to think. That sort of art yeah. school character sat on my shoulder going, hmm, really? Yeah. Have you not considered? You know, <laughs> yeah. and, and so I decided to make stuff that even if it was brilliant, I was going to be throwing it away. Or even if this is, you know, what, I would set myself a task going, right, today I'm going to make something that's going to go in the bin no one's ever going to see it. And if it turns out to be a really good piece of work, too bad, it's going in the bin. Yeah. And just as an exercise to be less precious. And I think I am less precious about my work now, which is which is good. I'm definitely happier just head down, churning out the work, and then you put it on Instagram or whatever without thinking. And don't, you know, it's really hard not to uh, worry about or think even think about what other people are thinking, but it is the death of making interesting work. I think the reason I struggle to answer the question um, is because I don't feel... Right, here's how I'll explain it. Robert Cooper, brilliant artist, studio downstairs here. I'm seeing him a lot at the moment because I'm working in this space. And he said to me the other day, he said, oh, I was thinking about your work last night. And he said, and I decided that it asks questions. So I was like, right, okay, I'm happy with that. And he said, I think you can sort of put most work into two categories of work that kind of assert something or work that asks questions and I was like I agree and I very much feel that my work is not asserting something about I'm sure it is asserting something about myself but I don't set out to make the work to express my my experience of who who I am I'm making the work to figure out who I am I know that's a bit of a poncy way of putting it but I don't feel that I have something personal to say whatever is personal in the work I'm figuring it out with you so it's not an expression of saying one specific thing. I feel like I've learned a lot and I'm figuring it out through making the work. The making is the thinking. Mm. Well, the, the trouble with, with, with that is you've got the entire history of you behind that finished artwork down there. Whereas the artist you're talking about, you're having a conversation with, he's got just a small piece of history of knowing you and that artwork, you know? So you are coming at it from slightly different angles. So no one's ever going to see it the same way as no. you, the artist, are they? No, know? no, exactly. No, and I think you just have to uh, resign yourself to that. Yeah. What would you be if you wasn't an artist? Well, I don't think I would have been a doctor, like I thought when I was 16. I don't think I would be a comedy writer. I don't know, I'm definitely being something creative and I think that whatever you do, you know, like I say, creativity is just a form of intelligence. Yeah. And actually anybody good at anything, even in 
supposedly non-creative fields, they are creative about it. Um, if I were born into totally different circumstances, maybe I'd, you know, be someone who makes things. Maybe I'd be a welder or a... I did want at one point to make prosthetic eyes. Wow. Um, because I thought that was some sort of some like compromise between the arts and sciences or yeah. medical sciences and art. Um, maybe I'd be a welder with a wife and three kids and just <laughs> having sex with men at the weekend. <laughs> Switching on the lights yeah. for the Jewish family next door every Friday. Yeah, Saturday. exactly. Um, where can people find you, be it social media or website? Uh, website is alirosenberg.com, A-double-L-Y, and it's Rosenberg, B-E-R-G, not U-R-G. And Ali... You see there, I've have you scribbled it out? I've put the E there. Yeah, it's bane of my life. <laughs> um, and Instagram, Ali Rosenberg Artist. And the final question, which is pretty much how we started, what have you got coming up? My solo show. Um, 18th of November, please pop along. Um, so that's the London solo show. I've also got, hopefully solo show in Greece I'm doing a residency in Athens in February nice. for a show in uh, March wow. um, the same sort of thing in Milan for uh, I think May June and loose talks of similar things in Shanghai and South Korea wow, so it's all it's all come along at once I feel you know I'm a little bit older than some of the you know my contemporaries having these sorts of opportunities but I'm really glad that it's come along in my early thirties. Yeah, excellent. Well, Ali, that's all my questions asked. Thanks, Gary. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I very much appreciate it. Yeah, it's been nice talking to you. Well, hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. If you're unable to support us on Patreon, leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to this podcast really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast or even giving us a positive shout-out on your social media. Anything is appreciated. But either way, thanks for listening, and until next week, ta-da. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.